Please open your Bible to Philippians 2, uh, pages 5 through 11. Uh, no, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. There we go. It's on page 1165 if you're using the Pew Bible. Paul is continuing here on his theme of living as citizens, not of America, not of Rome, but citizens of God's own kingdom. And he's encouraging us to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Specifically, if you were here last week, you might recall Paul is arguing that within the Christian community, we should be characterized by a mindset, an attitude of humility. And now Paul turns to Christ himself. Humility is fitting for the servants of Christ, Christians, because it is the mindset, the attitude that we see in Christ. And so Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul roots his argument for why we should be humble, why it's appropriate for Christians in the mind of Christ. He says, look at what's important to Jesus. What principles governed Jesus' own life? What, what guided his decision-making? How did he think about how to relate to others? Look at that mindset and let that mindset be in your own minds. Christ's story then uh, that Paul tells here in the rest of this passage shows Christ's mindset. First, he was in the form of God, but in the form of God, he emptied himself. And then, uh, becoming a servant, and as a servant, he humbled himself in obedience, leading ultimately to death. Paul says, this is the paradigm for the Christian mindset. If you ever learned a foreign language, you might recall memorizing paradigms. You might not remember the paradigms, but you remember you know, all your conjugations of the verb, all your declensions of the noun. Uh, when I was in grad school, I worked as a cook in a restaurant, and I had Hebrew and Greek paradigms taped to the wall, so when I was doing prep work and dishes, I was memorizing, working on my paradigms. Luo, lues, lue, luamen, luete, luusen. Uh, and you get it in so that you can rattle it off years later. Okay, that's the paradigm. And Paul's saying that's what Christ's story that he lays out in these verses should be for us, this paradigm that we rattle it off. Uh, that it's, it's ingrained into us, that we never forget it, that he was in the form of God, but he humbled himself, uh, or, or, or he emptied himself, becoming a servant, and, and in the form of a servant, he humbled himself to death, that that paradigm should be stamped onto us. This pattern, uh, James Boyce calls it the great parabola, that he's as high as possible, descends as low as possible, and then is exalted by God. Well, I've already preached half the sermon and we haven't read the text yet. Let's turn to Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. Hear now God's word. Hear this paradigm that Paul lays out for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. 
Although, Paul's basic point here is we need to have a mindset of humility, which we also see in Christ. His basic point is about how we should live. He roots this mindset in the story of Christ and offers one of the most theologically dense passages in all of Scripture. There's simply so much packed in to these six or seven verses. And so what I want to do over the next several Sundays, actually next week we have a guest, but uh, the next several Sundays that I preach, is to use this passage as a basic primer on the gospel message. If you're here this morning and you're considering the claims of Christianity, maybe you come with your family, maybe you're a visitor, and you aren't quite sure what to make of it, great. We're glad you're with us this morning. We try as a church to be a place where questions are welcome, and you feel welcome to ask questions. And I hope that this mini-series on this passage gives you a more clear understanding of the basic claims of Christianity. But many of us here would say that Jesus is central to our lives. And when we're excited about something that's important to us, it's natural that we want to talk about it. And so it's really easy for us to talk about friends, family, sports, hobbies, breath of the wild, politics, you name it, things that we're excited about, it's easy to slip into conversation. But if we're being honest, sometimes it's hardest to talk Jesus. We'd say he's so important to us, and yet he's the one topic that is kind of hard to bring up, especially with neighbors, friends, family, coworkers, other students that we're not quite sure where they're at, uh, not quite sure if they share our value of Jesus. And so one of the big questions is, what do we even say? Where do we start? Well, the basic gospel message, what we need to say if we want to communicate Christ faithfully, is good news about Jesus' identity, his mission, and his call. About who he is, that's his identity. About what he came to do, that's his mission. And what he wants from us, that's his call. Who he is, why he came, how he wants us to respond, that's the basic gospel message. And so I want to focus on these truths as we look at Philippians 2 over the next couple weeks. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus in on the first question, the first part of that basic gospel message. Who is Jesus? And here in Philippians 2, we see at least three basic truths, or we need to see at least three basic truths. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. And that the Son of God became man for us. Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully human, and the Son of God became a man for us. First, Jesus is fully God. He's fully God. Uh, Charles Dickens, David Copperfield famously begins like this, to begin my life with the beginning of my life, I record that I was born. But Jesus' life doesn't begin at birth. His story begins much earlier, or in fact, earlier is the wrong word to say, because he is the eternal Son of God. And so Jesus' birth only comes partway through Paul's brief story of Jesus here in verse 7. Jesus' story begins much earlier in the eternal life of God, for the Son existed prior to his incarnation. And so Paul begins his story of Jesus in verse 6, he was in the form of God. Actually, uh, Paul uses the participle here. He's uh, being in the form of God. Uh, it's this ongoing, he was in the form of God, he still is in the form of God, he will be in the form of God. He's always in the form of God. It's an ongoing state. Well, what does it mean for him to be in the form of God? Uh, 
Paul's word here, it doesn't just mean an external shape, like some sort of a passing similarity, as we sometimes use the word form, but form refers to something that's an essential characteristic. It's part of its nature. Okay, if you see an animal swimming in a lake or a stream, and you see a broad, flat, scaly tail and fur on the rest of the body, what is it? It's a beaver, right? Because the broad, flat, scaly tail is the essential form of the beaver. When you see that, you know it's not a muskrat or an otter, it's a beaver, right? And that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. The defining characteristics, the essential nature of God is what Jesus was in. Paul's not saying that Jesus was a God alongside God the Father like so many beavers in a pond. No, in verses 10 and 11, when he says, uh, uh, every knee should bow in heaven on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 45 there. And listen to that little bit larger context, the verse right before Isaiah uh, 45, 23, uh, 22, 23, 24. Here's the little bit larger context. God speaking through Isaiah says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. I am the God, there is no other. I am the righteous Savior. That's my form. That's my essential nature. And Paul quotes that part from Isaiah to drive the point home. The Lord is God, there is no other, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, to the glory of God the Father. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. There is no other. Jesus is truly and fully God. But then we see the mind of Christ. What does it mean to be divine, not hoarding power? Not putting others down? No, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The logic of that, of, of that phrase means that he was equal with God, for he was God. And yet that equality is not something to hold on to. Uh, the picture here is uh, 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 something to be grasped. Remember, it's Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies, that he's, he's my precious and he's, he wants the ring. I mean, that's the picture that Paul's using here. He's saying that Christ didn't grasp after it. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't use his equality with God simply for his own advantage. Indeed, he didn't look to his own interest at all. We might say that Jesus reveals that the divine nature is to be self-giving. And so he emptied himself. He emptied himself. This doesn't mean that something went out of him that was there so that he's now empty. The question is not, what did he empty himself of? But into what did he empty himself? Paul's using a metaphor. He's, he's saying Christ poured himself out like a drink offering. The old King James translates this phrase, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Here's the mind of Christ. To take what's best and greatest and most important and most valuable and to abandon it freely for the sake of others. Here's the paradigm that should ground and govern our own mindsets. Why can God empty himself? How, how does the Son pour himself out? What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here then is the second truth about Jesus' identity. Jesus is fully human. 
Jesus is fully human. See, Paul's story of Jesus, it has these two parallel forms. Being in the form of God, taking the form of a servant. The Creator willed to live as a creature, to reconcile us to Himself. The Eternal entered into time. The Almighty is born to the lowly, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, God with us. Although the Son is equal to God, He pours Himself out by taking the form of a servant or a slave, by submitting Himself in time, in history, to God the Father in obedience. In short, although it isn't very flattering to us humans, what it means for God to empty himself is to become one of us. Compared to God, we're like nothing. And so for God to become a human is like to become a nothing. In Paul's day, at least some people believe the great men of history, Alexander the Great, whose empire stretched from the Balkans all the way to or Caesar Augustus, who brought the century of Roman peace, they believe some of these great men of history were so great, in fact, that when they died, they became sort of minor deities. They became gods. But you see, Paul's story moves the exact opposite direction. It's not Jesus was so great in this life that he becomes the Son of God. No, he is the Son of God. And he takes on of a slave. He's moving downward, the opposite direction of Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus. God is self-giving, not seeking his own benefit, and therefore the Son of, man, Son of God becomes a man because it's in our interest, not in his. He empties himself by being born in the likeness of man. How? As Charles Wesley puts it in his hymn, "'Tis mystery all, and yet this mystery is true, and it's at the very heart of the Christian faith." I know I use this illustration more than once, but it's because it's, it's a good illustration for me because I'm such a bad bowler. But you know when you go bowling and there's bumpers on the side that stop the ball from going in the gutter? As we approach the mystery of Christ, that's about the best we can get is bumpers that say, don't go here because you wind up in the gutter. Don't go here because you wind up in the gutter. Okay, so we can say some things about what it means for God to become man, and yet they're primarily negative. The divine nature and the human nature are united in the one person, Jesus. Jesus is fully human. He had blood and a body and flesh and bones and a soul. He was a real flesh and blood first century Jewish man who had favorite meals and favorite stories and favorite games to play with his siblings and sorrows and joys. And he learned carpentry from his father Joseph and he smashed his finger with the hammer and he got blue nails uh, and he bled when he got cut and he enjoyed traveling with his closest friends. All those sorts of things that make you human. But he also knew sorrow. The, the Apostles' Creed simply summarizes his life on earth as he suffered. He knew what it was like to be mocked and betrayed and written off and rejected and crucified and killed and buried. Jesus is fully human. And yet, becoming human, being fully human, he doesn't cease to be God, but as God, lives out a human life from birth to death. He was and is always in the form of God, and yet he takes the form of a servant. He is eternally divine. Becoming human is something new. But there's no Jesus apart from the Son of God. It's not that there was some guy named Jesus who God decided to adopt and say, this guy is now my son. No, Jesus existed because God the Son became human. 
when the son takes the form of a servant, it doesn't create a third thing. It's not like mixing different sodas together to create your own flavor, that you mix a bit of God and a bit of human and you get some kind of third thing. No. In the one person, Jesus, are two natures. He's fully God. He's fully human. Or to use Paul's language from Philippians 2, he's in the form of God and he's in the form of a servant. And yet those two don't get mixed together into some third thing. In Jesus, God and man are united uh, the, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, the two natures, the two forms are united in the person of Jesus in such a way that they are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Without confusion, the divine and human nature don't get mixed up. Without change, uh, his divinity doesn't become humanity. His humanity doesn't become divinity. Without division, you can't part Part, part Jesus out. Here's the God part. Here's the man part. Separate him out. Indeed, without separation. In Jesus, God and man are inseparably united. In fact, the Belgic Confession says these two natures are so united together in the one person that they are not even separated by death. So then, what Jesus committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body but meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. His deity did not cease to be in him. In the form of God, the son emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And then being found in servant form, what did he do? In Paul's day, strange as it may sound, some people chose to become slaves because it was a way to advance their career. As, as strange as it may sound, even becoming a eunuch sometimes could advance your career to a higher level. So some of the slaves of Caesar, for example, would be very high-ranking members of Roman society. Uh, Cicero had a slave named Tiro who worked as his secretary. And when Cicero died, Tiro had earned enough money that he bought a country estate and retired to it. Okay, it's a pretty cushy job in that case. Most slaves it was miserable for and not a great situation. But in some cases, becoming a slave of the right person would be a way to lift yourself up. But that's not what Jesus is doing. This isn't like, okay, I'll be a servant for a little while, and it's a trick way to get more glory for myself. No, being found in human form, he didn't work his way up as a sort of inspirational rags to riches story. Say, look, you guys can all do this too. Not at all. He humbled himself. He continues his downward trajectory. Do you see the mind of Christ? God become man doesn't look down on everyone else, but counts others more significant than himself. He looks to the interest of others and so is obedient to the point of death. That's how he humbles himself, through his obedience to God, even to the point of death, even death. But of course, now we get to Jesus' mission and we'll come back to this next time. So as we conclude, we need to see a third truth. The Son of God became man for us. The Son of God became man for us. Jesus was, began in the form of God, or it began is the wrong word. He was always in the form of God. Eternally God. Equality equal with God. He had no need of anything. So why then did he become human? For our sake. For us. For our sake, he became poor that we might be made rich. The incarnation shows us the mind of Christ. 
we began by asking, what's important to Jesus? What principles and objectives shaped his life? And we see so clearly now. Christ took all that he had, what was most important to him, what was best, what was most desirable, his divinity, indeed his very life, and he gave it up for us, for our sake. And so here's the paradigm of the mindset that we Christ followers should also have. Here is one who is truly our superior and yet nevertheless counts us more significant. But the incarnation also shows us God himself. One of the funniest stories in the Old Testament is the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11. If you remember that story, a bunch of people come together and they decide we're going to build a tower to make a great name for ourselves. So we're going to make a tower that goes all the way up to heaven. And yet the story says God seated in heaven says, let's go down there to see what they're doing. And the point isn't that God can't see from heaven to earth. Of course he can. The point is their tower is so small that it can't even be seen from heaven. They're saying, we're almost there, guys. A few more bricks, we're going to make it to heaven. From God's point of view, it's saying, no, you're not even close. I can't even see the building project. What's the point? The point is that we are unable to bridge the gap between God and humanity from our side. We can't build our way up to heaven. We can't get into heaven to bring God down, to see what God's like. What do we need to see God? We need God to become man to show us God. And what do we see when Jesus comes in the flesh to reveal God to us? Is God austere, unfeeling, distant, judgmental, authoritarian? No, what Jesus reveals is that God's fundamental character is self-giving is loving. God is love and so gives himself to us and for us. And so the story of Jesus forces us to rethink any assumptions we might have about what it means to be God. Okay, we might think being God is fundamentally about power or those sorts of things. And that is true that he is God Almighty. And yet what we see in Paul's story is that God and death on a cross are put together in one wonderful paradoxical sentence. John Calvin comments, the Holy Spirit wants us in the death of Christ to see, taste, reckon, feel, and acknowledge God's on, uh, only God's unmixed goodness and Christ's great and inestimable love toward us, regardless for himself that he spent himself and his life for our sake. When you hear this story, when you see this story in front of us, is that what you see? God's goodness, Christ's love? Do you taste it? Do you feel it? Do you acknowledge it? Can you reckon it to your own account? God's fundamental nature is other-centered. God's essentially self-given. Eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are focused on each other. Glory to themselves. And this loving, self-giving character overflows in God's sovereign decision to create the world. And when creation falls into sin and death and decay, God empties himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is what God is like. Finally, the incarnation that God became man shows us God's radical commitment to humanity. If you ever had an ant farm or maybe went to the aquarium, surely you thought at least once or twice it would be fun to be an ant 
for an afternoon, right? It would be fun to be a fish in that aquarium and swim around and see what the other fish see. Okay, we've all had that idle thought. But who would want to be joined to an ant for the rest of their lives? Okay, it could be fun to wander around an ant farm for a little while, but you don't want to be an ant on your wedding day or when your children are born or at key events in your life, right? But the son, doesn't become, the son of God doesn't become a man for an afternoon only or even for a sort of 33-year jaunt on earth. God the Son inseparably joins humanity to himself. He joins himself to human nature. When God highly exalts him, he exalts him as the incarnate God-man. When Christ returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Lord God of Israel, it is to the incarnate God-man that we will confess. Uh, the Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance says, the, the atoning exchange that makes us one with God, reconciles us, begins with the incarnation. It's not just on the cross, but the decision to take humanity to himself is the beginning of reconciliation. Uh, the early church father Gregory Nazianzus says, the unassumed is the unhealed. It's what God assumed to himself is what's healed. And so he assumes a full human nature to heal the full human nature. My uh, grandfather, I don't remember his blood type, but had a, a relatively rare blood type. And in the town where he lived, uh, Kelso, there was a young girl who had some kind of condition where she regularly needed blood transfusions. Again, I don't know all the details, but he would regularly get calls even in the middle of the night saying, we need uh, uh, some blood donation for this young girl. She's in the hospital. And so would go and have some blood drawn and given to this young girl. Okay, but that keeps happening. And when my grandfather died or, or this young girl moved on, whatever, there needed to be someone else. It was not a permanent fix. And yet, in a sense, a sort of blood transfusion is a picture of Christ taking human nature to himself, that he infuses it with his own divinity, that he's saying, I'm bringing these things together. I'm making God fit to, or man fit to be with God for eternity. It's like a blood transfusion into the heart of the human race. And so the Belgic Confession, again, we confess him to be true God and true man. True God in order to conquer death by his power and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. Basics of the gospel. Who he is, what he came to do, what he wants from us. Who is he? Jesus is fully God, fully man. The Son of God became man for us. Let's pray. Lord, knowing you is something outside of our mere human power. We need you to reveal yourself to us. And so Christ came. If we saw your glory uh, unmediated, it would destroy us. It would kill us. You told Moses, no one can see you and live. And yet Christ came, God in human flesh, that we might see what you are like. And yet to see God in the man Jesus is a work of your Holy Spirit. And so by your Holy Spirit, may we see in Christ's life and death. Might we taste and reckon and feel and acknowledge Christ's great and inestimable love towards us. God's unmerited, undeserved, unmixed goodness. Lord, may this paradigm be imprinted on us. First, that we would know that our value is in this. That you gave yourself, you emptied yourself, you humbled yourself for us. 
And so we are of inestimable value in your eyes, bought at the price of your own son. And then let this paradigm shape our own mindset, that when we think how should we act towards others, how should we react, what should our attitude be, that this paradigm of Christ who humbled himself, who sought the interest of others and considered others more significant, that that paradigm would be printed on our own minds. Do this work within us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's rise to our feet and we're going to confess together.